Hi, this is Ian Harvey, Tokyo US Brand Manager. I've got the pleasure of having Andy Newell with me today. Andy coaches the BSF Pro Team and he runs Nordic Team Solutions. He's got 247 World Cup, World Championship, and Olympic race starts, including three podiums and a large number of top tens. Andy's fifth World Cup total season ranking in sprint has been in the top 10 six different years including a fourth in World Cup sprint standings overall in 2010. He's also married to Erica Flowers. I'm really honored and excited to have Andy with me here today. So thank you very much for being here, Andy. Thanks, Ian. It's like to be here. I've known you a while, a long time. And yeah, I love everything you do for our sport. And it's a pleasure to sit down and talk with you here. Thank you. Pleasure's mine. Um, so let's dive into this. The first time I noticed you was at US Nationals in Bozeman at Bohart Ranch what's now called Crosscut Mountain Sports Center in December of 2001. You made, this is my recollection anyway, you made the senior national sprint final and I think you ended up second as an 18 year old junior. Is that right? I can't really remember, but yeah, that sounds possibly right. Yeah, yeah I think that's how it went out. Um, and this was a stacked field because we were using these, these races to select our Olympic teams. So it wasn't like there were a bunch of top athletes in Europe and then, you know, a lesser field. This was everyone that we had. Um, since then, you've been a staple on the national and international scene and have been highly successful, of course. It's great to sit down with you. Um, and so this is a privilege as far as I'm concerned for, for me and to bring some of your knowledge and perspective to the American ski public. So the first question I want to ask you is where did you grow up and how did you start ski racing? Yeah, well, thanks. Um, it's funny to think back to those races like in Bozeman um racing those u.s national races seems like a long time ago <laughs> it was. It was a long time ago um so i yeah i started skiing in southern vermont which is where i grew up um my parents live just north of bennington vermont which is about as far south as you can go in vermont and local ski area there is called prospect mountain ski area um it's a small alpine hill that turned into a cross-country only area um, and yeah, there was a cool little club vibe there around Prospect Mountain. Um, Prospect Nordic was a good development club. My parents were involved. My brothers and sisters were involved in that ski club. Um, and it was kind of that after school skiing program. It was the Bill Coke League um, was, was going on at that point. So I was like a product of the, the Bill Coke Youth Ski League development pipeline uh, that was put in place by NENSA. Um, and yeah, I'm really grateful for that opportunity. NENSA is a really amazing organization just, um, with the way they organize all those little different zones between like, you know, New Hampshire, Vermont and Maine and all these kind of, um, little club races that happen at different levels. NENSA has always been really organized in that approach to getting young youth skiers involved in racing at a very young age. So it didn't take long, like five years old, six years old, I was doing the little local races around Prospect Mountain uh, with my folks. And yeah, I went through that up until ages 12, 13, 14. And I was also very lucky to be able to work with a few awesome coaches, even at that level. I, I don't think I realized um, how lucky I was at the time. I of course had, you know, I, I think my mom helped coach me one year. She was the Bill Coke coach, uh, but I also had guys like Bucky Broomhall. I don't know if that name rings a bell. You guys legendary. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So he's part of like the legendary Broomhall family um, out of Black Mountain, Rumford, Maine. Mm -hmm. And Bucky Broomhall was 
my classic ski coach when I was 10, 11, 12 years old. And he only classic skied. And so at Prospect, it was like one day a week with our training, I would go and meet Bucky Broomhall and he would teach us how to put the wax on, you know, teach us how to cork our own wax on as 10 year olds. And, and he, we would go and do these technique sessions with Bucky. And he really taught me how to ski in that traditional classic skiing kind of way, which I think a lot of kids don't get now. So I'm, I was grateful that I got to kind of, get that little bit of like traditional style classic coaching from a legend like Bucky Broomhall and he would teach me how to just do these really big striding things and he taught us to keep keep our head level um, and our and like our hips and heads very level and smooth so he, he taught me how to ski in that really big smooth kind of old school classic skiing kind of way um, at a really young age and I think because of that I was I was kind of fascinated by technique pretty early on um, which was fun so Big shout out to Bucky. Cool. <laughs> so that's where I got started. And then went to Stratton soon after that. Once I was uh, 15 years old, I started attending Stratton Mountain School. And then from there, racing all over the country. Yeah. <laughs> so I grew up with a poster of Bill Coke taped to the ceiling over my bed. Mm -hmm. um, back then, we didn't have all these websites and access to information. So every little bit I got, I would, I had articles taped to my wall. Everything was Bill Coke for the most part little Dan Seminole. Um, I was lucky enough to meet him as a ski racer in the early and mid 80s. And then later on, just like I met him last year again, and um, it was in Craftsbury two years ago at Nationals. And every time I meet him, I, it chokes me up. You know, I look up to him so much. And he's had such an influence in my life. Although, you know, in terms of time together, it hasn't been that much. But I just love the guy and, and everything he stands for. Um, so you have been this for this generation, absolutely. Um, but I'm curious who you were trying to emulate when you were a, a little squirt skiing around. Who yeah. was it that inspired you? Um, that's a good question. I, I also looked up to folks like Bill Coke. You know, we heard these stories of Bill Coke and, you know, Gallagher and like all these legendary Vermont skiers since we were Vermonters. So we got kind of those stories passed down to us. And I can remember meeting Bill Coke as well as a little skier at the Bill Coke Youth Ski League festivals um, and being pretty blown away like, oh, this is Bill Coke. This guy's a big deal. Um, and at that age, you don't really know why. It's like everyone just, you, you hear it's Bill Coke. So you're like, oh, this guy's the man. Um, and it, it's been cool to get to know Bill um, as I've gotten older. And you know, his son is a really talented skier, Will, who I've worked with a little bit through my years at Stratton and at some of the US ski team camps and stuff. So it was always the same way, very starstruck when I hang out with Bill Coke and talk to him. Um, but kind of some of the other athletes that I look up to as skiers when I was at that developmental age, so like 12, 13, 14, 15, um, where I was starting to get into more like serious training, um, for sure, Bjorn Dolly is a huge um, influencer on, uh, on me. And I would this is going to seem really funny to a lot of kids nowadays. You mentioned there was no internet back then or like, you know, when we were kids, we couldn't just tune in and watch a world cup ski race like kids do nowadays. It just wasn't an option. Um, you know, the internet was pretty spotty back then and there was just no way to watch world cup racing. So, uh, I can remember, uh, you probably know the name Torbjorn Carlson, obviously. Oh, yeah. Shout out to Torbjorn. And so he used to, run fat, the faster skier website um and had another 
service there where you could order like um, VHS tapes of World Cup racing. And so it was like the Olympics and like world championships. And I can remember my parents ordered me um, the Nagano Olympics on VHS tape. And uh, I think one of the other world championships from around 98, 99. And I would watch that on like repeat and watch Bjorn Dolly, uh, Thomas Allsgaard, um, Per Olofsson. Those are probably like three of the major skiers that I would look up to. And it could be the middle of the summer. It could have been like the middle of July. And I would take that VHS tape and stick it in the VCR and watch like the men's relay from Nagano and watch Bjorn Dolly skating. And yeah, I would get way into that, just watching those races over and over again, even though I knew it was going to happen. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's, that's why I have those visions of like Dolly, Allsgaard, Perilofsson. I can really vi visualize their technique from back then because I watched those videos so much. And those were the athletes I really looked up to. Yeah. That's fantastic. Um, just a quick anecdote. In the eight or mid eighties, there was zero, there were zero videos. There was zero anything. And so yeah. we were reduced to recording whatever the broadcast networks brought. So I remember, for example, um, in 85, World Championships were in Seyfeld, and there was two and a half minutes total. Two and a half minutes is what they brought. And I remember every second of it, and I probably watched it 100 times, the soundtrack when they were bringing the race was uh, Urgent by Foreigner. Whenever I hear that song, I think of skiing because of that. And That's I can so remember cool. every single part of every single minute of that race. And I watched it with my, a bunch of my high school ski friends that we, you know, but that's what we were reduced to back then. It was zero. I and mean, now we're so spoiled and everyone takes it for granted. It seems to me anyway, it's amazing mm -hmm. the transition we've gone through. So I know what you're talking about. Yeah. It's pretty incredible now that we can watch a world cup minutes after it happens or even live online. And it's, it's incredible. It's a great resource for athletes, for young kids. That's for sure. Yeah. So here's a, probably a difficult question to answer, but let's look at it. instead of not giving people recognition, giving someone a shout out. And that is, you have had many great coaches. Which one has had the biggest or positive impact in your ski career? Well, that's a tough question. Um, <laughs> I've been really fortunate enough to have amazing coaches all the way back to the, the Bucky Broomhall days to Sferi, who was my coach from, uh, you know, 15 years old to 18, 18 or 19 working with Sferi Caldwell. Um, so Sferi was huge. Obviously he, he taught me, so much about goal setting, um, about what it was like to train full time for skiing. That's kind of the education that you get at Stratton. And I was really thankful for Sperry for, for helping me out with, he, he kind of always made sure we knew why we were doing a certain type of workout. And that's something I've tried to take with me throughout my entire career. So it wasn't just like, Sperry was never like, okay, we're going to go skate ski for two hours let's just go do it. There was always like a, a, a vision and a goal for each workout and something very specific to work on. And if you were going to go do L3 or threshold intervals, Sari really wanted you to make sure you knew why you were going to go that pace, how that was going to help you with your skiing, you know, what kind of lactate you were shooting for. And so it was a really cool education on kind of the basics of like ski physiology, you know, mental training, all kinds of things that really served me well later on as a professional athlete that I was getting at a pretty young age at Stratton. So, and Sperry, of course, always kept it fun, which was huge. I think he, he really understood the team aspect of skiing and how to keep it fun. And like nowadays team culture and is such a power word, you know, in athletics and Sperry was teaching team culture 
you know, back then before anybody else was really talking about it. Everyone thinks um, when, you know, when you think of the U.S. cross-country ski team right now, you think of this really positive team culture. Everyone works together. Everyone's having a good time. And that's something I think that's a model that Sferi has been using his whole career, um, which is cool to see that now transition under the top level of the U.S. ski team. Um, so Sferi was huge. Also, Chris Grover, who um, I worked with basically on an individual coaching basis for probably 10 years or more, um, writing training plans with him. Um, and he was a great coach because he really taught me. He's one of the more organized people I've ever met. <laughs> Chris. So he's, he taught me how to be super organized with my training, how to um, kind of always be open to trying new things and not getting stuck in, you know, a rut. Even if you have a successful season as a skier, you almost always need to somehow change something for the next year. That's how you maintain that consistency and stay at the top of your sport is constantly um, changing your approach. Um, and that's kind of my mantra now is kind of, be a student of the sport. And I think Grover did a good job of teaching me that, like how to be a student of the sport, continue to learn each year, continue to try something new um, and just be really organized in your approach, really crunch the data each year um, and just try to be as professional as possible towards your, your training theories and all the types of training that you're doing. So yeah, those two were, were hugely influential to me. You know, uh, I grew up in Massachusetts, skiing public high school, um, sometimes in Neshoba Valley, you know, we had no snow, we're going up in Neshoba Valley and Greybrook Farm. And I'd go to all the New England races and Jane Q's and all that stuff. And, and I was just some cut up from Massachusetts, but Sferi took me under his wing and he always looked out for me. He'd give me technique tips here and there. And I really appreciated him. His, his, uh, he wasn't just a Stratton coach. He was a coach to anyone who, who needed help. And he, he had a big influence on me as well. Yeah. Great technique coach too. Sferi was always, He's one of, one of those coaches, when he taught technique, he always focused on not just how something should look and how it should be, but also how it should feel. And that's a really important aspect for teaching technique that's helped me along the way. He was always really into like how the kind of flow that you get through skiing, whether it's classic skiing or skating, like it should have a certain type of feeling and a certain type of flow. It shouldn't just like look a certain way, but it should feel a certain way. And Sperry was pretty good at trying to describe that to athletes. Before I figured out how to classic ski using my hips properly, and using a straighter leg and having all the impetus, impetus coming from my hips, he used to call me Mr. Knee Drive. And it was, a, it was a way of provoking me to ski better, you know? So he said it with a big smile on his face, but he was making fun of me. <laughs> and uh, and I, it, 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 it made me aware of what I was doing wrong anyway. So it was cool. So uh, Andy, as I mentioned before, you've had many great races, including three World Cup podiums, uh, a season after which you're ranked fourth and fifth in the world overall. You've had 247 starts at the highest level. Is it possible that you have a favorite race experience that you could, that you still love remembering and so makes you happy to recall? And if so, can you describe it? Hmm. That's a good question. So many memorable world cups for sure over those years. Um, and I think what I'm most proud of throughout that stretch is, is kind of like the consistency um, of being able to maintain that kind of world cup level of skiing um, throughout those years, you have to kind of be, if you're going to be in the top five on the world cup ranking for sprinting, you have to have a pretty consistent season. And so I worked, it was, it was a lot of work to get to that point where I could, you know, be in the top 10 
um, you know, almost every race in the season and try to be fighting for points. Um, so that was really fun and exciting. Like when I look back at those years, it's not just, just not necessarily one race that stands out, but it's like a whole season of fighting at the top is really exciting. Um, it's, it's one of the, you know, some of the most exciting years of my life where you're, where you can go to every world cup and know that you can be kind of fighting for a podium. Um, and it, and for sure fighting for a top 10, every single race. Um, it just keeps you so mentally engaged and motivated. It's just an exciting type kind of racing to be involved in. Um, but if I could think of one race for me, the, the 2007 world championships in Sapporo was really cool experience. Cause I mean, first of all, we were racing in Japan, which was really exciting, um, to bring, you know, be in a, a country that feels so foreign to you. You're used to racing in Europe and then, you know, you go to Japan for world championships, super exciting. And the sprint was actually in a baseball stadium. Um, so I've always been drawn to those races that bring a ton of crowds in and it's like kind of a, kind of a stadium gladiator kind of vibe. And, and that, that's exactly what this race was in Sapporo. We were competing in downtown Sapporo. So in a pretty major city, um, the race started in a baseball stadium and went outside up, you know, two series of hills that was actually outside and then came back into the stadium for the finish. And, the, and inside, it was just like spectators everywhere. Um, and it was at night. It was at like eight o'clock at night. So it really had a cool, like exciting vibe. Um, and I ended up winning the qualification that evening in the world championship sprint as a, you know, 22 year old kid or something. And that was really cool to like, you should have seen the faces on the Norwegians. Like not only is an American winning, but it's in a classic sprint and like in a classic technique race. And that was kind of unheard of back then. And it was a really fun feeling to try to, you know, beat the Swedes and the Norwegians in, in something that they were so good at and so passionate about. Um, and in the end of the day, sprint. I mean, yeah, there were some races where Norwegians would be seven of the top eight or seven of the top nine in, yeah. in classic sprint results. So that's, that was their thing more than anything else. So that's really impressive. Yeah. And it was, yeah, it's like going up against the army, you know, the red army, we would call them. And, and uh, that day ended up fifth, a couple seconds off the, off the podium. Um, and I don't think I even realized how close I was to winning a medal that day. Um, but even still, it was a, that, that race really stands out um, as a, yeah, super exciting event, kind of a breakthrough event. And then in the years of 07, 08, I was actually the top ranked fifth sprinter in the world because of those fast qualifications. So it was kind of an exciting time. We, we felt like I can remember talking with Grover and some of my other coaches back then and really felt like we were on a forward, really strong trajectory. Like the training we were doing was working for whatever reason, like we were, we were tossing around different types of training ideas and trying new things. And we were getting faster than anybody else in the world for whatever reason. And, and things were just starting to click. And so that was an exciting time. Absolutely. Yeah. I should have mentioned that in my introduction, you were the number one ranked sprint in the world for quite a while. That doesn't equate necessarily to World Cup points, but it's got to do with qualifying times and fist points. Mm -hmm. Yeah, correct. Yeah. yeah, but that's, I mean, uh, amazing. <laughs> of course, number one in the world. So um, this is a, something, a, there's a lot I want to learn from you, and I think there's a lot that the American ski public can hopefully learn from you through this interview. Here's one of them. Um, in Utah, everyone looks up to John Stockton and Carl Malone. And those two were famous, not only because they were very successful basketball players, but they also were humble and, and super hardworking and they had a lot of longevity. And I, uh, there's a lot of stories floating around Utah as to how they operated. Um, they're very professional. 
they were they had uh, chiropractors and they would show up super early and do very extensive warm ups and warm downs and they had a lot of body maintenance type of activities that they did very um, regularly. And when I look at their example and I observed you, especially over the last 15 years, you remind me of them. And I would say the only, you're the only Nordic skier that I've observed very well that has remind me of them in terms of the professionalism, the attention to detail, the attention to avoiding injury. Um, I'd love for you to talk about that because to me, that's, that's a very important part of being a ski racer that's overlooked. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, in order to stay at the top of your profession for an extended period of time, for me, it was a 16 year run on the world cup. Um, like I mentioned, you always have to change something from season to season. Um, if you're training the same way you were even two or three years ago, you're already going to be kind of behind the curve. And I think I naturally, um, was drawn to that side of the sport. Um, I kind of have that, um, I don't know, engineer's mindset a little bit where you always want to tweak something and try something slightly different, um, figure out how all the pieces are put together um, in a training plan or in a strength plan. Um, and so, yeah, you mentioned professionalism. And for me, it's just a matter of like looking at all the little details. Um, you've probably heard the expression like at the top, you know, what, what's going to be that small margin of victory at the top? Everyone's training hard. Everyone um, is doing more or less the same type of, you know, hard interval training, hard strength training, but like, how can you piece it together the best to be most successful and how can you pay attention to the small details? And sometimes that means um, being really professional with your kind of warm up protocol for certain types of races. We would really dive into what we were doing, um, warming up for sprints. And so, yeah, I was, I was kind of on the newer side of sprint racing, but a lot of people don't realize that sprint racing had been going on since the mid nineties. Um, it was, and I was kind of, we're talking now we're in the mid two thousands when I was racing some of these world championships and Olympics. So sprinting had been around for a while, but people were still tweaking around, tweaking with how you train for sprinting, how you approach the warm ups, how you approach the cool downs, all that kind of stuff. And so, um, from a training perspective, I, I was really always interested with those types of fine tuning adjustments. Like how can I warm up for a sprint, um, differently? Do I incorporate some weightlifting in my warm-up? Do we use med balls? Do we use bands? Um, a lot of guys like on the World Cup, Emil Janssen was a Swedish guy who was really, um, he would push some of the, like his warm-ups. I've never, he would do, he could do an entire foot warm-up just with dumbbells and weights and like barbells before a sprint. And he was playing around with doing stuff like that. And I remember a lot of the Swedes were playing around with, um, yeah, using lots of like resistance bands and sprints as part of their um, like foot sprints as part of their warmups. Um, we did a lot of research on warm down protocols. So like not just skiing around easy after you've done a sprint, but playing around with like what exactly do you need your heart rate at to clear the most lactic acid, um, doing little like pulses, you know, within your warm down protocol in between the heats. Um, and so, yeah, that's, these are all things that I think of when I think of being a student of the sport, that's what I think of is, is trying to make these small adjustments anywhere you can. Um, and Grover was really great at teaching me how to be professional and make sure we're writing stuff like this down and recording it. Um, and yeah, <laughs> it's a, uh, it's, there's so much in, in the strength, you mentioned the strength training and the um, kind of injury prevention stuff. And that's some, something that we, 
that our sport has gotten a lot better at over the last decade is understanding the importance of injury prevention in the weight room. Um, that's something I think if you look at cross your skiers 20, 30 years ago, you see them start to develop back problems, neck problems, all that kind of stuff. Um, and I, of course, have a back problem right now, too. I herniated a disc in my back um, almost two years ago and have struggled to try to come back from that. But we really do a ton of injury prevention in the weight room. It's, it's basically 50% injury prevention, 50% strength building um, when you're in the, in the gym um, with the plans that we work on and the plans that we write. So, um, yeah, it's, it's all about building a balanced athleticism. We, we, we're starting to see um, that skiing now is so much more of a power-based endurance sport. I think in the 70s and 80s, it was more of a efficiency-based endurance sport, and now we've transitioned into a more power-based endurance sport, which changes our approach and our weightlifting and, and the way we prepare for a lot of these races. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so I have noticed this, and you've already touched on it a number of times, about how analytical you are, about how attention to detail you are, about how extremely professional you are. So this next question might strike a nerve because I personally hate it when people in the past, I was quite successful as a young athlete. Um, with two years left as a junior, I was 10th in senior nationals. As a first year senior, I was third in uh, super tour type races with everyone there. You know, I mean, I was pretty successful. And I heard a thousand times how talented I was. And it pissed me off to hear that because I had some talent, but I felt like I, I was, um, I worked really hard and I earned every bit of it, you know? Um, so I'm curious because I would say that you are probably the most talented natural athlete I've ever seen on a pair of skis. So my question to you is how much of this obvious talent is learned and how much of it is uh, natural? Wow, that's an interesting question. Um, I think a lot of it is learned, and it's learned at a young age. So when I was growing up skiing in Vermont, um, we, my coaches and just my friends that I skied with really emphasized the fact that you have to play a lot on your skis, and we did, we did that a lot as kids. We would, oh, yeah, you did. <laughs> yeah, we played a lot, obviously. You know, um, even as a really small kid, we were – hitting jumps on our skis. Um, Prospect Mountain has, I think, one of the first half pipes ever built, ever, anywhere. Because, you know, snowboarding started in Vermont and, and Southern Vermont's kind of like home of snowboarding. Uh, and Prospect Mountain actually had a half pipe from the early, early snowboarding days of the 70s and 80s. And so we would go into this half pipe with our skis as 10 year olds and, and go rip around. Um, we would also do a lot of really short racing, um, just the nature of the trails at Prospect Mountain, it's, it's very small loops. And so when you're skiing with your friends, you're always racing from one intersection to the next intersection. So you can get there the first, you know, and like, oh, I beat my buddies to the, to this trailhead. Um, and I think just the nature of that type of skiing trained me really early on to be a, a fast dynamic skier and in, just enjoy going fast um, on my skis. And so I think, yeah, that stuff, was a little bit natural, but also very much learned at a young age. Um, and so when I came onto the World Cup scene and started racing more World Cups in my early 20s um, and was having success winning qualifications, getting into the top 10 or podium on a World Cup, I think it did feel like a little bit like natural talent. And then um, because I think it was, we kind of came out of nowhere. We were, we were kind of skiing in our own little bubble in the US and we didn't know what we were doing 
was actually making us fast as fast, if not faster than the rest of the skiers in the world. We were just kind of playing around with the, the new concepts of sprint racing. And sure enough, it really worked out for us. And I have a long, I could talk all day about the reason why that, that, that some of the things we were doing were so different than some of the other countries. And we didn't even know we were training so differently, but we just kind of were. Um, so I think initially to get to that level, it, it requires a certain amount of natural talent, but, um, yeah, like you said, I really felt like I worked my butt off to stay at that level between, um, you know, for a 15 year period on the world cup. Once I got my first podium, I had to really put my head down and, and work hard each year after that year after year, keep upping the training volume. Um, sprints changed. They started qualifying 30 people instead of 16, they started, lengthening sprints up to 1.8 kilometers and so I really had to put my head down and work hard throughout those years once I was at that world cup level to, to maintain that kind of level of fitness try to increase fitness each year get to the point where we're training you know well over 800 hours which initially we thought as a sprinter wasn't really something that you're going to have to do but the sport continually evolves and so we had to continually evolve as well and so um yeah I don't think you can really I think you can make it to the World Cup level on natural talent, but you can't uh, really make it to the top of the podium or maintain that level for very long unless you want to put the hard work in. Um, and I was, yeah, I was never afraid to put the hard work in. I enjoyed pushing myself um, those long days and grinding it out with the team. Yeah. Another adaptation you had to adapt to is uh, another change is it seemed like uh, the championship courses in sprint got consistently harder and harder and harder. Which, which made it more demanding and it'd be more of an aerobic animal to be to compete after all the rounds huh mm -hmm. yeah. yeah definitely i mean my the first olympics and when i competed in 06 in torino um they were they had that was the first year they started qualifying 30 for a sprint but it still it broke down to actually heats of four people by the end it was like a different breakdown there was no lucky losers back then yeah. um and then yeah once they incorporated the lucky loser format started qualifying 30 people um, you definitely had to be not only one of the fastest athletes out there, but one of the most fit athletes out there too. So yeah, for me that took, um, yeah, that didn't come naturally. I think I'm naturally fast and, and enjoy going quickly on my skis and, and kind of the neuromuscular and, and technical aspect of ski racing, of ski technique, I, I found to come naturally. Um, but the, aerobic side of things I had to really work at for a long time to, to be at that level. Yeah. yeah. So I want to switch gears a bit. Um, we've been talking pretty much about you as an athlete and your perspectives, but I want to talk a little bit about um, coaching and we'll, we'll jump back and forth a bit, but I have, I know you're super analytical. Um, I think I'm analytical too, but uh, I don't know if anyone's at your level in terms of understanding um, and innovation. So I have a couple questions for you. One is, let's, this is a very common scenario. You're someone skiing along and say, hey, Andy, how am I doing? Can you give me some tips? And, and I, I think that could be frustrating for you because I know how your mind works, I think. You're more or less a bottom to top, you know, um, let's, let's get the whole thing together. So almost like a chiropractor, you walk and say, um, my, my, I don't know, my hip hurts a little bit. Those, they'll work in your neck, they'll work in your back, you know, they do the whole foundation before they work in your hip. And I think technique is very similar to that, especially the way you look at it and the way I look at it. So let's say someone's like, they're looking for, uh, you know, relax your shoulders a little bit, or, you know, uh, maybe change your arm swing like this, or stand up more. And what you want to do 
I think is a bottom or top kind of a thing. And from what I've seen in your videos and progressions, the first thing would be maybe to have your body position in a stacked position, pretty much in all techniques, not only skiing, but all sports for the most part, so that you've got, you're not only aligned, but you're also operating from a position that's efficient and you have good leverage. Um, uh, so, and you can also access your power. Yes. Is that a good first step? Yeah, I mean, I think you, you hit the nail right on the head there um, by comparing it to PT, for example. Yeah. Um, you know, the hip bones connected to the leg bone or whatever the song's going to go. Yeah. Um, and that's something we are transitioning right now into a new teaching of technique. I, the kind of technique I teach is what we, what we call a mechanics-based approach to technique, which really focuses on body position. Um, but before we get there, yeah, so – you know, previously a coach might look at a skier's hips and be like, okay, your hips are in a weird position. Let's, let's try to get these hips forward. Let's try to get you in a certain body position. Um, and what I've found to be more successful over the years is exactly like how you're comparing it to a PT. So your hips are in a certain position because your shoulders are in a certain position your shoulders are in a certain position because your arms are in a certain position. And when I approach technique with a client or an athlete or whoever, it is kind of like picking apart a puzzle. So you need to see, um, you know, if an athlete is in a poor body position, so if their hips are not over their feet or if they're not applying power correctly, it's usually a byproduct of something else. And so by simply working with somebody on their arm swing and how relaxed they swing their arm through, I can usually get their hips into a better position. I even just work with an athlete on where to put their chin or which, you know, how to look through, look down the track and position their head, it can relax their shoulders. Your shoulders are relaxed, it will tilt your hips underneath your pelvis or your pelvis will tilt in a certain way and then your leg will swing through in a more dynamic fashion and all these things are linked together so yeah breaking down technique is something um that now with my job as a coach and with running nordic team solutions is something i dive deep into on a daily basis and it is like a puzzle every time you work with an athlete it's a new puzzle what's gonna resonate with them and, and, and kind of elicit a, the kind of change you want and for a lot of athletes that means using Right now we have a, a model where we use a combination of what we call external cues and internal cues. So yeah, when we're talking external cueing is, is, a, is a strategy we use to teach proper technique nowadays And that. So previously a coach might say to an athlete, okay, your hips are in a bad position. We want to get your hips forward. What, but in reality, what we found is that actually is not a great, um, great piece of feedback to give an athlete because it, it's it's very awkward for an athlete to kind of move their hips into a certain position when when like you mentioned when we compare technique to physical therapy for example how everything's connected um i might encourage an athlete to then think about kicking with their feet down in a certain position so an external cue means um comparing what your body's doing to something around it so that means kicking down into the ground is is an external cue we use in classic scheme and so Instead of an athlete worrying about where their hips are, I might encourage them to use some more external cueing, like kicking down into the ground or swinging your arm towards the sky. Um, kind of coming up like with all these different external cues I could give an athlete versus telling them to move their hips in a certain position. And we found that to be really successful with teaching technique. Uh, you know, you picture a skier from the 70s, they're bent over here, you know, moving down the track and as skiing has become more dynamic and more powerful the body position of the skier has come more become more upright and you look at Claybo, you know nowadays who's running up a hill in a very upright position um 
and and that's an example of using like more running based body positioning within our scheme because we want to be in a be in a position where our bodies can generate power down into the ground um which will then propel us up the hill um and the only way to do that is from a powerful athletic body position which is why ski training now is is very more is a lot more athletic based than it was purely endurance based um 30 years ago so nowadays we're training much more power much more uh dynamic movement in the gym and on our feet um so a lot of dynamic foot training um a lot more explosive training in the gym so so we can work on that stacked um explosive body position that we want to be in where we can apply power really well and recruit the right muscles yeah so thank you what's an example of an internal cue yeah so an internal cue would be like um like a snappy kick that's a great sferry word right there like have a snappy kick so that means like yeah like think of it being really quick that's an internal cue is like relax your arm or have a snappy quick kick is it is an internal technique cue an external technique cue would be like yeah push down into the ground or get your hand above your get your hand above at eye level while you're skate skiing like get your hands up here or or have your elbow follow your pole shaft for example is an external cue versus like an internal cue which is just like swing your arms a certain way yeah so thank you um one other thing that I, I think that belongs to this conversation is the idea back in the day people were leaned over and things were long and smooth etc and as, as we've become more and more upright um, I think it's important to recognize how much more compact our movements have to be I constantly think about staying compact um, and when we do progressions at least when I think about progressions I always think about first body position and second, making sure that any movements you're doing are very compact. And it seems to me that's one problem area of Nordic skiers is trying to make their movements, their range of motion is too long and not compact enough, which results in poor body position and no dynamic application of power. Can you talk to that, please? Yeah, I mean, you hit, you hit it right on the head there. Um, you can actually look back at video um, to, let's see, right around the late 90s once head-to-head -head sprint racing became more popular or actually became a full-time world cup event so that meant that means that they um you know in 1999 they had the first world championship sprint um and you can watch that i look at guys like zorzi and uh christian zorzi torani hetland these were all guys that i started racing against when i first got in the world cup and it was like these were the legends of sprinting, but these, these guys were like really first generation sprinters. And you can see those guys in 99, uh, at that 99 world championships, they're still slightly more bent over. Um, but what you see there is a really quick transition to all of a sudden, um, once we started putting customers more head to head and actually had to have people accelerating past one another in the finishing areas and start, you know, it became more tactical throughout a short duration race. Um, what you see is faster gear changes. So you need to accelerate a lot quicker, which means you have to bring your hands and hips up a lot quicker, um, and create that dynamic forward movement. And so that's exactly what Zorzi and Torney Hetland and those guys started doing is you can watch that video from 99 and their hands and hips are just firing forward all of a sudden. And then like within two years, you see everyone starting to skate ski in a more upright position, classic in a more upright position. So that power can go directly down into the ground. And so these are all really basic running mechanics principles that we now use in ski racing. And so 
yeah, you can bring it back to somebody like Claybo just because he kind of is the most visible example of that running mechanics during skiing. But yeah, when he's running up a hill, he's not moving his body faster. He's just spending less time on the ground and putting more power into the ground, which is what's making him ski so much faster than anybody else. But um, is yeah. it accurate to say it's not just a question of running? For example, many people aren't going to understand where I'm coming from here, but um, if you compare Anders Auckland's classic skiing technique to Oxlade Teichmann's classic skiing technique, you've got two hugely successful athletes. And ironically, Auckland is by far the better runner, but it, he's long and stretched out, kind of the old technique, whereas Teichmann was extremely upright and short, powerful strides, kind of the new technique. Um, and to me, I mean, he never really ran much. He was just so upright. He had tremendous kick because his weight was right over his wax pocket. Is that, yeah. is that what we're talking about, right? Yeah, exactly. And, yeah. And, and, and now I still think that there's some discrepancies there. I mean, a lot of people like to try to, let's say, glide more or in their glide phase, they almost use their upper body and leg as a counterbalance sometimes, which is technique killing, you know, as compared to that stacked body position, keeping that stacked body position, keeping things compact, right? Yeah. There's a big, big contrast between those two ideas, huh? Yeah, exactly. And I don't, I really don't encourage um, young athletes. Like I, I don't encourage the trend of like just running all the hills, you know, on your classic seas. I am really a fan of that Anders Auckland style technique as well. Um, I'm, I'm not a fan of a drawn out technique where you're in a, in a poor body position, but I really am a fan of like more traditional striding um, where you're, you know, have a big glide, really quick leg swing, or if we're talking skate skiing, like a really relaxed, big pushing V2. Um, and I think as an athlete, you have to have all elements of that, of you have to have a lot of bags of tricks, you know, of, yeah, what would be the expression? You have a, a big arsenal of techniques available. So if you're somebody that's just practicing a running technique on your skis, I think you're, you're missing out. You got to channel that Andres Auckland or that Bucky Broomhall. You have to channel that kind of relaxed, flowy technique too and be able to switch through those techniques really easily um, throughout a race. And, and, and you should be able to cycle through different types of techniques and not just be stuck doing one. But um, even nowadays, we can train a relaxed flowy classic skiing kind of technique um, that incorporates a lot of glide, but also generates a lot of power at the same time. And what we're doing there is just um, running mechanics wise. Like the reason you are in a certain body position when it comes to correct running mechanics is so that you can recruit certain muscles, like particularly your glutes and your hamstrings. So if you're really bent over right. skiers of the, uh, of the seventies, were not using much of their glute strength. Um, in a powerful way. And, and the glute muscles are some of the more powerful muscles in the body. And so if you're in a more upright position, you're actually able to engage those muscles better um, and create a lot more power down into the ground, which will propel you down the track. And so a lot of the techniques that we do now, whether you're running on skis or using a more glide, a, a technique with more gliding, we're really trying to recruit the glute and hamstring muscles as best we can, which is kind of that new approach to technique. Cool. And, and in classic, of course, more or less you get better kick too because your weight is more of your wax pocket exactly yeah okay here's another question for you i know you use a lot of progressions and that's something that i'm a big fan of as well a progression would be where you're trying to teach somebody somebody something you start out in very basic movements as, as we talked about body position compact movements slower movements you're not you're not dynamic or there's no power yet and then and then you make slight changes with with after they've 
um, realized or accomplished certain objectives for the previous progressive and you only move on when they've made progress and that's a great way of teaching bottom to top uh techniques and movement patterns can you talk about the importance of progressions in coaching yeah i mean i have a saying like if you can't do it if you can't if you can't if you can't be in the right body position on your feet you're gonna have a really hard time doing it on your skis and that's basically the principle of, of a progression is that you need to learn the correct movements on your feet first and then then you can take it to your skis take it to roller skis take it to skis um, and so that's where progressions come in. Um, some athletes respond better to progressions than others. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so that's a, a big principle of, of our current teachings is that we want to teach people to be athletic and move well on their feet and then transfer that to skis. And uh, this is going to be a huge generalization, but typically in the U S we want to look back at U S skiing historically. Um, and again, this is a generalization, but it's, it's easy to say we're not attracting the most athletic people to our sport. You can say that. It's, it's always been the case. Just because you're super fit doesn't mean you're athletic. Um, and so when you look at American sports, it's typically the most athletic kids get snatched up into things like soccer, basketball, baseball, things like that at a pretty young age. And so historically, cross-country skiing has kind of been left with a little bit of the stragglers. Some, some of the less athletic folks get more involved in endurance sports. It's just kind of the way it's been. Um, historically. And so we're doing a much better job now of recruiting more athletic kids into cross-country skiing. But even if you're not a, a purely athletic, like naturally athletic kid um, or adult at that matter, for that matter, getting involved in skiing, you can train athleticism on your feet before you, before you then transfer that to snow. And it, and it really needs to be done on your feet first before you do it on snow. Um, and it works and it, and it's amazing. Like doing, the kind of plyometric work that we've started doing these days, like plyometric progressions where you're just working on, you know, a single leg hop and then turning that into a bound, for example, um, it works. And I can remember like even this season I was, or last season I was over in Oberstdorf at a, at the pre-world championship event. And I saw Jesse Diggins uh, doing some plyometrics in the gym a few days before the event, we were in the gym together working out. And I was like, Jesse, you're way better at jumping now than you were five, four or five years ago. Like Jesse wasn't a particularly um, like athletic jumper. Um, she didn't, didn't have a great ground contact, wasn't super balanced in the way she did plyometrics and could jump over hurdles and stuff like that. Um, but through years of practice, she's become way more athletic on her feet. And that translates directly into her being faster sprinting. And so last year, Jesse had one of her most successful sprinting seasons she's ever had. She was qualifying easily in the top 10 um, had, I think two or three sprint podiums last year on individual sprints. And that's a direct translation of her working on those types of progressions where she's working on being dynamic on her feet, jumping, bounding, and then transferring that onto snow. So it's cool to see it in action. Absolutely. Okay. So my next question would be, do you have a magic bullet workout, like a workout that to you is so key and accomplishes so much that it's like, it's kind of your go-to. Hmm. Um, I think it depends on exactly what, um, I'm trying to work on. So when I was sprinting some of my fastest, we would focus on pretty short duration intervals. Um, and that's something that was new to cross country skiing, um, around like the, the turn of the millennium. So around like the two thousands, 
um, when sprinting was becoming much more popular and it was a every weekend kind of event on the World Cup. Um, that's when countries started training more specifically for sprinting. And um, I think the U.S. was on, we were on the cutting edge as far as um, creating workouts that were geared specifically towards creating fast sprinters. We didn't actually know we were doing this while it was happening, but we were one of the first countries in the world to incorporate like more track and field style interval sessions, um, like leg speed kind of thing. So um, 30 second intervals, 90 second kind of intervals. Um, nowadays, these are common practice in ski training, whether you're a marathon racer or a 30K racer or a 15K racer. A lot of people do 30 second intervals or minute intervals. But back then, it was not something that skiers did very often, um, which is kind of cool. Like we were on the forefront of that progression. Um, and the reason being is because we had, we recruited a lot of help from sports scientists. The U S ski team did that is, uh, recruited a lot of help from physiologists from that had cycling backgrounds and track and field backgrounds. Um, which was neat because we, we started doing these 30 second progressions or 90 second progressions where you increase your number of reps of intervals as you get closer to the fall. Um, so for me, I don't want to call it a magic bullet workout, but if I see an athlete who needs to work on um, their qualification speed in sprinting, for example, I'll have them do 30 second intervals or 90 second intervals. Um, and it's a misconception that when you're doing a 30 second interval, that this is like a sprint is as fast as you can go kind of interval. It's actually a much more paced interval than that. It's like, a, you know, an 85% max speed. Um, and that's how you train that really relaxed, fast skiing that you need as a sprinter. Um, and especially to be able to sprint fast. So, um, I'd say that those are some of my magic bullet, bullet workouts are, um, 30 second intervals or 90 second intervals. If I want to really up my speed, uh, and become a fast qualifier or, or a fast heat sprinter is to do those types of intervals and, and train not an absolute max, like speed trying to move as quickly as you can but moving fast and relaxed and that's how you train that is through those types of interval progressions cool that's a that's a really interesting comment i want to play around with that more yeah so last question for this session would be uh i'm the total glove designer and uh, i love getting feedback mm -hmm. and one of the questions i like to ask is what your favorite toko glove is and why have you got a favorite there's, there are so many, honestly, there are so many good Toko gloves. I'm not just saying that because I'm on the phone with you here, Ian, but no, I love the Toko gloves. Um, let's see. I like, I tend to wear the Thor Thermal Race and the Thermal Plus the most, those two gloves. Um, I think the reason is because I, I love those gloves because they're warm, first of all, but you can also grip your pole really well with them, particularly the Thermal Race. So it's a really solid race glove in that like, Nobody wants too much material between their hand and the pole, especially as like a sprinter or somebody needs to have a lot of control over their, over their, their poles and generate a lot of power. Um, so those gloves are great because they keep your hands warm, but you can also grip your poles really well. So by far my favorite. Thermal race and thermal plus. Yep. Okay. So I wear, the, I wear the plus if it's like, you know, let's see, what's my cutoff? I don't know. I feel like if it's around, if it's in the single digits, I go to the plus. If it's above that, I'm in the race. Oh. Huh. Cool. All right. Thanks. Um, well, this will be the end of the first part of two interviews. And I've, I've really enjoyed this. I'm looking forward to the second part, which we'll, I'll post shortly after doing this one as well. Um, yeah. it's, been, it's been a pleasure talking with you, and I'm looking forward to the next part. So 
Thanks, Thanks for letting me. Thank you.